0: So we have been learning shara bitochen from the sefer chavis halavas about the uh, various uh, concepts about bitochen and Hashem, and this week, because as I said last week, it is one week before Purim, and uh, therefore we're going to do something different, and we're going to look at the Tov of Purim and learn a number of bitochen related messages from the Tov of Purim. Um, and of course Purim is something that uh, comes around every year and we've talked about it many times, but we'll talk about it from a Bitochen angle this year. And I have collected here 10 Bitochen messages from the Yom of Purim. Um, let's see if we'll be able to get through all of them. We're going to try. Um, and here we go. So, message number one. The story of Purim begins with the great feast of Ahasuerus. What was that great feast all about? Why did he make a great feast at that point in time? Um, and therefore, why were the Jews so severely critiqued for going to that great feast? And um, there's many answers to that question. But one of them, and the historical one, the, more, the historical backdrop of Purim, is that he was celebrating something very significant. He was celebrating what he felt was the... Um, the end of the Jews' hope. And the reason for that is because we know that it was just uh, about 70 years earlier that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the first Beis HaMikdash, which really was the first time that the Jews went into exile. If you think about the history of the Jewish people, right, we became a nation by the giving of the Torah. You know, we left Mitzrayim, we, we, we received the Torah. And then, Meshach Rabbeinu leads us through the desert, Yeshua leads us into Eretz we're going to be in Eretz Yisrael for some, about 850 years. And then the uh, the first base of Miqdash is destroyed and the Jewish people are exiled. Now when they're exiled, they're given a nevuah, And the nevuah says that they're going to come back to Eretz Yisrael in 70 years. Shivim Shana, 70 years. Golos Bavol was prophesied to be for 70 years. Um, however, according to Achashverosh's calculations, the 70 years finished when he ascended the throne of Persia. And when he ascended that throne and the 70 years was up, is now when he's really, really happy because he sees it as it didn't work for the Jews, right? They're exiled and they're going to stay in exile. And that's why at that great feast, it says that he takes out the um, garments of the Kohen Godol, he takes out some of the spoils from the Besamikdash, because remember, the history is that it was the, um, it was the Babylonians who destroyed the Beis HaMikdash. But the Babylonians then fell to the Persians. And Achashverosh is sitting on that throne of Persia. So he now has the uh, spoils of the Beis HaMikdash and he has the garments of the Qayyim Gadol. And he takes them all out in order to celebrate what he sees as the final downfall of Klal Yisrael as a nation. So that the, this Se'udah, that the Megillah begins with, the Feast of Ahasuerus, is really a celebration of what he feels is the end of the hope of the Jewish people. And therefore, when some people did go to that Se'udah, went to that Feast of Ahasuerus, we have over here a very severe lack of bitachon on their part, on their faith in the Navuh that they were told that the Golos was going to come to an end and the Gulah would come, the redemption would come. And we have a general rule. The worst, the worst um, downfall into exile is when one stops believing or hoping or waiting or yearning for? Gula for redemption. And we have this all the way back in Mitzrayim. When you, when, um, by the Golas of Mitzrayim, we have that in the uh, Makkah of Choshech, it says that many, many Jewish people died during the Makkah of Choshech in Mitzrayim. Why? So we say it was the wicked Jewish people that died. And the question is asked, but many wicked people left Mitzrayim too. So who died? Who really died in the Makkah of Choshech? So it's, it's, it's written in Sfarim: the ones who died are the ones who didn't believe in redemption. The ones who were looking forward to Geula, to redemption, they're the ones who died in the Makkah of Choshech. Because as it's written, that the most important aspect to be Zoha, to Geula is to wait for it, to yearn for it, to believe in it. And we say it in the davening. We say, David We daven for Mashiach every day, and we say, raise the salvation of Mashiach." because we wait for it. In other words, we're saying, "What's the greatest zuchus? to be zochet to Is that we're waiting for Geula?" The Chidam makes that point. He says that we're, we see here in Shmuel Asrei that more than any other zuchus, the zuchus that's going to bring us the Geula is the fact that we remember it, we wait for it, we yearn for it, we daven for it. And all of that is the antithesis of what the se'udah of Achashverosh at the beginning of the Megillah is. Achashverosh is celebrating the end of the Jewish hope. The end of Bitochum, 70 years are up, the gulah didn't come, the promise didn't happen, and that is how the story of Purim starts, with Achashverosh celebrating the end of the hope of the Jewish people. And again, and many Jewish people went to that seudah, which was a terrible critique. How could they go and be part of something that was celebrating the end of their hope? When in, and, 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 and as the story of uh, Purim progresses, they're machazik, they strengthen their hope, and ultimately they're going to see that ghoul on the building of the second base of Mikta shortly after the story of Purim. Did they know what the suda was yeah, for? Yeah, that's my question. Sure. It was well advertised? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For yeah. the end of the... Uh, well, I, mean, I don't know if everybody knew, but it seems that it wasn't a hidden thing at all. Hashverosh was celebrating. This was 70 years. It's exactly 70 years. According to his cheshbon, there's a few cheshbon on so how to count the 70 years. Ultimately, we count from a few years later, and that's why the Bishanik was built a few years later. But but clearly, this suda was a, a a celebration of end of bitachon, end of hope. And the the opposite of that, the antithesis of that, is always to be mechazik, to strengthen our bitachon, and understand that even though a golos might be long and much longer than expected, and Sadiqim told us Mashiach is coming already, but to believe that and to hope and to wait and to yearn and never to give up hope, like Achashverosh would have wanted us to do. But so this was yes. such a big gala that everybody wanted to go. Like, why would? Well, he was the king. He was the king, and they were in golos, Remember, they were <laughs> this is not a good right? place to be, right? Then they're not in the greatest st- state of being spiritually speaking. Okay. So that is point number one. That the biggest, uh, that step number one in Golos, the worst step in Golos is when we lose our hope, we lose our faith for Geula. And that is how the Megillah opens up with that meal, celebrate that feast celebrating a state of Golos. Let's move on. Point number two. The very famous question is something we've spoken about here numerous times in the past, but nevertheless, it has to be said always. Um, the, the decree of the story of Purim was the worst decree ever in the history of the Jewish people. Right? Never in our history was there a decree that all Jewish people should be put to death in one day throughout the world. I mean, we've had a lot of terrible situations in our history, but we've been set, spread all over the world. So, you know, the Nazis were the worst in the areas that they controlled or the inquisition of the areas that they controlled or the communist in the areas that they... But here we had a situation where all the Jewish people are under the sovereignty of one king. And that king decrees the destruction, the annihilation of all of klaus Again, in our entire history, we never had a story like the story of Purim, where the decree was as grave, the danger was as great as in the story of Purim, right? And the Gemara asks the famous question, what did we do to deserve that? What did Klal Yisrael do to deserve such a decree of, of annihilation of an entire nation, men, women, and children, everyone? What terrible sin may we have done, could have been done, that to be deserving such a terrible, terrible fate, such a terrible punishment. And here we have the answer given, and the, the famous quote is, is shall also that the Jewish people benefited or had hanah, they had enjoyment and pleasure from the feast of that terrible, wicked person, Achashverosh. That's the cryptic answer of the Gemara, which raises the question, why is that so terrible? I mean, okay, so they shouldn't have gone. Um, maybe the food wasn't kosher. And that's not even clear, according to some Adrashans, the food was kosher. Uh, maybe it was inappropriate. Maybe it wasn't Sniyas. Whatever you're going to say, it still doesn't seem to justify such a terrible decree and punishment of entire annihilation. So how do we understand, and again, this is a famous Quran question and a, uh, different answers given, but I'm going to choose one, one that the Rebbe talks about in one of the sikhahs that's so connected to what we've been learning about Pitochem. And he says the following, it wasn't a punishment. It's not as if they did an Avera and Hashem says, I'm going to punish you that you're going to die. That's not the story. The story is to, to the contrary. It was a simple consequence. Why did they go to that feast? As some of you just asked, why were they running to this feast? And especially the Gemara uses the expression not just they went to the feast, but Nehanu. They had no They had pleasure. They were happy to go to the feast. Why? And the simple answer is, as we just said, because he was the king. And if he's the king, well, we want to be in, you know, in good uh, graces, in good grace of the king. After all, who's going to take care of us? Who's going to look after us? Right? We have to. We have to do our hishtadlos using our words of B'tochner. We got to do what we got to do. So we got to be in the good graces of the king. And if we'll be in the king's good graces, then we're good. Then we'll be taken care of. So as the Medrash says, says the following. It says, Klal Yisrael, the, um, the metaphor is given in the Medrash is that we are like one sheep surrounded by 70 wolves. Kafsa achas <laughs> been shivim zikena. We don't have a lot of friends. and we have, But we do have a ro'eh. We have one shepherd, and that's Hashem. And as long as Hashem is taking care of us, we're good. What happens when we say, you know what, Hashem, we, we, we're good. We're going to have one of the wolves. They're going to take care of us. So Hashem says, okay, fine. You know, I'll go on vacation. I'll, I'll take a day off. And what happens? Well, when the sheep puts its, uh, faith, its faith and security in the wolf, then that's the end of the sheep. So, so the Rebbe says, that's the pshat. It's not that, oh, we said we're going to, to so HaShem says, okay, I'm going to give you all the death penalty. That's not what Hashem said. Hashem said, you're going to HaShem because you found yourself someone that he's going to protect you. Okay, let's see how this plays itself out. Let him protect you, then what happens? And as soon as we decide, as soon as we find other protectors, other uh, sources of security and hope—that's where our problems really, really begin, and that's all within that wording of the Gemara. Nehenu—the fact that they went. Well, sometimes you gotta go. You gotta go, right? You gotta make your as we've been say, as we've been learning. You gotta go. But that hanah, that sense of oh, Paroch Hashem, we made it. Achashverosh was gonna take care of us. If our faith, if our trust, is in Achashverosh we end up with a decree, the likes of the story of Purim. And it took them recognizing that and changing out of that, which changed the decree as we'll see in the continuation of the story of Purim. So that's point number two. We said we're, we're doing here 10 points, 10 points on Bitochem from the story of Purim. right? So point number one was that it was a se'udah, it was a feast that was celebrating the lack of bitachon. It was celebrating that Geulah is not coming anymore. Number two, We were putting our faith, our security in an Achashverosh, and that has terrible, terrible, uh, immediate repercussions, as the story showed us. Okay, let's move on. So in the beginning of the Megillah, we have famously that Achashverosh calls for Vashti. She doesn't want to come, right? And then Achashverosh says, okay, so what do I do? So Haman, or Mimuchanas, he's called at that point in the Megillah, comes forth and says, well, I think she should be put to death. Why? What does he say? Because if you don't put her to death, all the women in the kingdom are going to learn a bad lesson and they're not going to listen to their husbands and therefore you got to do away with Vashti. And Ahasuerus says, good thinking, right? And he does away with Vashti. That's the story. Which raises a very interesting and perplexing question. If Haman is going to explain why Vashti should be put to death, what's the logical reason he should say? She just rebelled against the king. hmm Right? That's, the king called for her and she said no. Mm-hmm. Well, that's called more de malchus. That's rebellion against the king. That's the reason they be put to death. What does Haman say? Well, she'll be a bad example for the other women of the kingdom. What kind of reason is that? I mean, if, if she just rebelled against the king, that's enough of a reason. You don't listen to the king. You know, that's the way it was in the olden days. You don't listen to the king. You become a head shorter mm-hmm. very quickly. So why did Haman come with this interesting kind of idea? And one of the answers given is, because really, Vashti could not be put to death for disobeying the king by that meal. Why not? Because in the Megillah it says that in that meal there was a st- special rule made that everyone should be able to do exactly as they please. The Pasuk says in the Megillah, Vashia kadas in ones yisad hamalach lasos Ish Va ish. At that meal, the rule was everyone does what they like. You want to drink? You don't want to drink? You want to eat? You want to eat? That was the special rule that Achashveru said by this meal: you do as you want. So Vashti didn't want to come to the king. So that was the rule. She's allowed to. That was the rule of the meal. So that's why Haman had to be a little, you know, ingenious. You know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He had to think of something clever. He says, okay, really, for the fact that she did whatever she wants, as far as the meal is concerned, that's okay. But there's another problem, a bad example for the women in the kingdom and so on and so forth. And that's why Haman had to come up with this whole story. That's an answer given to this question. But the deeper part over here is, why did Ahasuerus make that in this meal, everyone can do whatever they want? What was, what was behind that? This whole concept of lasos, kirson, ish, ve'ish. Everyone at this meal was given the rights to do exactly as they want. What's up with that? Why was that? And it's explained that that has to do with a very general idea about Purim itself. We know it's written that Purim is considered the, um, the kiyum, the, the completion of Matan Torah, the giving of Torah. The Gemara says that from the from after the giving of Torah, we were never, we can never be held fully responsible because we can always say the Torah was sort of forced on us. Mm-hmm. We came out of uh, Canaan Mitzrayim, Hashem takes us to Ar-Sinai, puts a mountain over our heads. We didn't have a lot of choices. In the story of Purim, we accepted the Torah on ourselves, on our own. Nobody forced us. The time of Purim was a time when Kalal Yisrael chose Hashem and chose Hashem under duress of death. In other words, they, they went on a serious nefesh, not to leave Giddushkeit, and they chose Hashem. That was not the story of Purim. So st- the story of Purim represents the idea that we choose Hashem when Hashem is not forcing us anything. When Hashem is not revealing Himself, it's not like the time of Matan Torah when there's great revelation and, and, you know, fire and clouds and glory of Hashem. It's a time of, the time of Purim, if anything, is a time of, of Hashem's concealment, great concealment. And we chose Hashem. So Purim affords us Bechira. Purim is we had the choice, and out of our own freedom of choice, we chose Hashem. That's why in the story too, Ahasuerus says, in this meal, everyone does what they want. Remember, the whole story of Purim happens on a lot of levels. On a simple level, there's Ahasuerus, there's the king, there's the Jewish people, but as it's written that every time it says HaMelech in the Megillah, allegorically it's referring to Hashem. And Hashem says in the story of Purim, that everyone should do exactly as they want. I'm not forcing you. You'll choose Torah. You'll choose Godliness based on your own, um, on your own choice. And that will be, that made Purim the big tov that it is. So again, I don't know if I'm being clear. The reason why in Ahasuerus' Se'uda, in his feast, there was this interesting concept of everyone do as they want. I'm not forcing anything was because that was what was going on at the time. Spiritually speaking, Hashem was saying this is a time of choice. You're going to choose, are you Hashem's people or are you going to opt out and go with Haman? But they went to the Suda. That's what they opted for. At that point. But later in the story, when Haman, when there was a decree that all Jewish people were annihilated, would be annihilated and they had the ability to opt out. See, that's the thing. In the story of Purim, if the Jewish people would say, you know what, okay, you know, we, we renounce our Judaism, Hamun wouldn't have a problem with them anymore. Mm-hmm. And it was at that point that they all chose, we want Hashem. So that starts in the Se'uda. In the Se'uda, the king says, whatever you want, in a sense, Hashem is saying, it's going to be up to you people to choose. Yeah. And what does that mean for us? And what does that mean, especially in relation to what we're talking about here about B'tacham? The question was asked in our classes the last couple of weeks over here. You know, if Hashem gives us all the Brach anyway, why is it concealed? Right? We talked about this a number of times. Ultimately we say everything comes from Hashem and we just do our Ishtadul's. So why don't we see how it comes from Hashem? Why do we have to go out to work for our money and go to the doctor for the healing and go to the Shabchan for the Shidduch and so on and so forth? We're always doing all these things and oh by the way, all the brach is from Hashem. But Hashem conceals it always. Why does he conceal it? Like in the story of like in the story of Purim. Because Hashem is saying, I need you to choose to find Hashem. I'm not revealing myself and showing you, yes, I'm giving you everything. Then you're not choosing anything. Then it's not yours. But just like HaShveru says in his meal, you'll do as you want. I'm not telling you what to do. And Hashem tells the Jewish people, you'll choose as you want. That's what Hashem tells each and every one of us every day. We choose whether we see how the source of everything we receive is from Hashem or we choose to see it as, well, it's coming from my job, and it's coming from my this, and from my wealth, and from my, from my wisdom, and so on and so forth. So the story of Purim is the story of concealment, which is really what Purim is all about. And it's up to us to find and reveal Hashem in that concealment. In fact, as we've said, the word Megillah, Esther, Esther means hidden, hidden and Megillah is to reveal galot. so the whole story of Megillus Esther is our job to reveal that which is hidden to find Hashem in the hidden trappings of what we call nature that's number three number four the Medrash has a very interesting metaphor about Haman right Haman is top of the world second in command to the king he makes this uh, decree gets the king to sign on he's going to destroy the Jewish people and the Medrash says a very, almost bizarre metaphor. It says, Mashal l'maha what, is, what is Haman compared like? And he says, it's like a bird who built a nest, and he built a nest right near the water. The night came and the water rose and washed the nest away. And the bird got very angry at the sea. And the bird said, you know what? I'm going to empty that sea from its water. And he's going to the sea and taking a drop of water out and putting it on the side, another drop and putting it out, another drop. And the bird has this battle in their mind. They're going to empty the sea of its water. A greater bird came and told this bird, says, silly bird, as much water as you'll take out of this sea, you're never going to empty the sea. This sea is going to remain filled with water. And the same way Haman wanted to destroy the Jewish people, and Hashem tells him, silly Haman, you think you'll be able to destroy the Jewish people, you'll never be able to destroy them. That's what the Medrash says. Very interesting metaphor. But the obvious question is, what is that metaphor telling us? What's a metaphor for? Typically it would add something or help us understand something better. What's the deeper message that this metaphor is telling us? What does human have to do with the birds trying to empty the water from the, from the sea? Right? So in a Purim talk once by Fabring and Zareb, gave you the following explanation based on another very famous story in Gemara about Rabbi Akiva. We know Rabbi Akiva was teaching Torah in the time of the Romans and he was putting his life in danger and ultimately he was killed by the Romans, one of the 10 martyrs, right? So the story said that he was told, he said, why are you teaching Torah? You're going to be killed. You're going to be killed by the Romans for teaching Torah. Stop teaching Torah to the Jewish people. And Rabbi Akiva said, I'll give you a mushel. He said, he said the mushel of the, right. the? No, the fox and the fish. Right? He says the fox was walking along the seabed and he saw the fish running, you know, swimming back and forth. And he said, where, where are you running around the fish? And the fish said, well, we're, we're trying to escape the fishermen, the, the, the nets and the, the hooks, they're trying to kill us. So the fox says, why do you have to spend your time running away from the fishermen? Come out, come out of the water, I'll take care of you. And the fish says, silly fox, he says, in the water we have life. We might die, but at least we can live as long as we're in the water. As soon as we leave the water, we're certain death. Rabbi Akiva said the same thing. He said, you're telling me not to teach Torah because the Romans are gonna kill me. The Torah is our water, that's our life. Here I can live like a fish in the water. Maybe I'm in danger, maybe not. But if I stop teaching Torah, that's like a fish leaving the water. Mm -hmm. So what do we see from the story of Rabbi Akiva? That the story of the water, water represents the Torah. And the Jewish people are in the water that's in the Torah, that keeps them alive. The same idea is the metaphor of the Medrash about Haman and the water. Haman knew, how is he going to destroy the Jewish people? Haman wasn't a silly man. And Haman knows that in the history of the Jewish people, many people tried to destroy them. What was his plan? What was he thinking? How is he going to get away with this? He He's going to get away with this by emptying the water from the sea. He, by taking the Kalashal out of their Torah. He saw that they went to Achashverosh's feast. He saw that they were weak in their relationship to Torah. Haman said, you know what? I'll get all the water out of the sea. I'll get... They won't have their water anymore. Then I can be victorious over them. And Hashem tells Haman it's not gonna happen. Just like the bird is not gonna get the water out of the sea, you'll never succeed in getting the Jewish people out of their water or the Torah out of the Jewish people. And therefore you're going to fail. And that's, that's the deeper meaning of that medrash, that Haman is compared to the fish, the, water, the, the, the bird trying to empty the sea from its water. What do we see from the story? that the existence of the Jewish people and their bitachon, their faith is because their connection to Torah. And so much so that even Haman knew that. Even Haman knew that all the external things he's going to do is all dependent on if he could rip away from their roots, from their source, from their terror, from their mitzvahs. And Hashem says, even if they went to the feast and even if they fell, even if they did averus, they're never going to give it away. If they'll be put to the test, they'll hold on tight and they'll strengthen themselves and they'll strengthen themselves in their water and you will never be successful. So that even Haman understood that the ultimate security of Klal Yisrael is not a it's not Haman, is their relationship to the water, the Torah. It's just that he thought he'd be able to remove them from it, but of course he couldn't. So that is point number four, that our our and our faith and our security is in the relationship with the Torah mitzvahs that we receive from Hashem. Number five. Where are we, timeless? I don't know. Okay, we're good. We're good. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah, we're good. 32. Yeah, yeah, we're good. Number five a story. The um, Rebbe Rashab, Rebbe Rashab is the fifth Rebbe of Chabad, Rebbe Shalom Dov Ber, once sent his son, who was later going to be his successor, Rebbe Yosef Yitzchak. And he sent him to do, help out a certain yid in a certain area. It doesn't say in the story what it was that he was asked to do. But he sent him to go do a shlichus, help out a certain yid. The son came back to his father and he says, Father, Baruch Hashem, I really was able to help that person. I'm sure you're happy. I'm sure he's happy. I did your shlichus well. I helped that yid. And the father told the son, he says, I want to tell you a lesson. And a lesson learned from the Megillah. And he says like this, he says, it goes back to my father. His father was Reb Shmuel, the Rebbe Maharaj, the fourth Rebbe. He said, my father, the Rebbe Maharaj, was always very involved with the Russian government and trying to avert different pogroms and other things. For, you know, he was very active for kal in Russia. And there were a number of uh, wealthy people in, uh, in, Lubavish, in the surrounding areas that were not really from and weren't uh, in the way of Torah, but sometimes he felt that they could be helpful with going to the ministers and doing certain things and making certain meetings for Qalil Yisrael. So one time the Rebbe Marash called together this meeting, and of these uh, you know significant individuals, and he says, I need you to do A, B, C to avert a certain danger for Qalil Yisrael. Now these people didn't like this, because Suddenly, the Rebbe is using them for his things. You know, they don't believe in the same things. They're not—they're—they're not, they're not, they're not, they're not The Rebbe doesn't ask their advice in how to run his—you know—Yiddishkeit. And now he's telling them to do this, do this. And one of them stands up and he says, "Levav Sherebbe." He says, "What do you think we are? Pawns? Like he just, you just—you know, know—you need help, so you want us to help you? You know, if you want us to help you, you have to also respect respect us, respect us and tell, you know, take our advice and so on and so forth." The Rebbe says, he says, I want to read for you a pasuk in Megillus Esther. What happens? Mordechai comes to Esther and he tells her, I need you to go to the king, right? The, the decree is there. I need you to go to the king. Esther says, I'd love to, but I'm going to die, right? Because she says that there's, there's, uh, there's rules in the palace. And the rules are, you don't show up to the king. And, you know, it's a clear rule. You're killed. You come to the king without being called for, you're going to be killed. And I wasn't called in 30 days, says Esther. What's Mordechai's response? Very beautiful words. Mordechai says like this. He says, Hashem is going to save the Jewish people. If you're not going to be involved, you'll be lost. Mordechai told Esther, Hashem wants to save the Jewish people and He's going to save the Jewish people. Your option is, are you going to be part of it or not? Are you going to have the zechus to be the one through whom Hashem is going to save the Jewish people? But the saving of the Jewish people is not dependent on you. What's dependent on you is are you going to have the zechus to be part of it? Said the Rebbe Maharash to those wealthy businessmen or dignitaries that were there, he says, listen, it's up to you. You don't have to help me. Hashem is going to help the Jewish people. I'm giving you the zechus of being part of Hashem's salvation. Mm -hmm. So the Rebbe Hashab tells his son, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, he says, you came back, he said, I did a favor for the other Yid. He says, don't look at it that way. Hashem wanted something to be done for the other Yid and it was done. You had this chus of being the vehicle of helping him, of being part of the mitzvah. Lesson from the Megillah. In other words, and that's so connected to what we've been talking about, that when I give tzedakah, it's because, oh, Wow, I gave my money to that person. I helped out someone. He says, no. If I have real Amun and Hashem, I know if Hashem wanted that person to be helped, that person was going to be helped. I had this khus that it came through me. I had this khus of being the one through whom to help another yid. And that's really what, what Mardachai is telling Esther in this very pivotal line of the Megillah, that ta- Hashem takes care of his own business. Don't worry about it. Hashem doesn't need me to take care of his business. Hashem gives me the opportunity. That I should have this chus of being part of that mitzvah, part of that celebration. And of course Esther did. And because and it's called Megillus Esther forever. Because she did. She stood up to the task and became the one through whom the nace happened. Is that an arrogant thing to think I had this chus? That's not arrogant at all. That's to the contrary. To the contrary. That's 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 a humble way of understanding it. No, as arrogant is when I feel I did it. I was the one who solved the problem. I helped the world. I saved the world, right? So the the humble way is, Hashem saved the world. But Hashem gave me this chus that I should be involved in it. That I had the the ability to be the one through whom the tzedakah flowed, through whom the help flowed, through whom the nest came. It's a tremendous chus. If I'm I'm a doctor, and I was successful, so I could say, wow, I healed the patient. Or I could say, Baruch Hashem, I had this chus that hashem healed the patients through me mm-hmm. I this that the Torah came through me to that person I this and that's what Murphy tells Esther I'm laughing at myself because you know I'm involved in the go and the get out the vote campaign and it's and I'm running around picking up ballots and bringing them in and today somebody said rabbi first and, and his Robinson's ballot is ready can you get it I'm like Thank you for the mitzvah. And they looked at me like, wow. I'm like, no, really. Like, the diet has been talking that everybody has to vote. And I'm the one who makes it happen. That's huge. 100%. They were like, no, no. where are we I'm proud of it? <laughs> you? Had this of like, I was like, wow. 100%. 100%. That's why I'm laughing. I'm like, yeah. And that's how we have to feel. Every time we're able to do a mitzvah and do a good thing. So we won the, we won the lottery. that Because that, Hashem has a million ways to get things done. And he gave us the ability in this schus to be part of it, to be a shut of. Okay, where are we holding? Number six. Number six. Let's go back to that same conversation of Mordechai and Esther. Mordechai tells Esther, you got to go. You got to go to the king. Um, you know, Reva Amod right? And then he finishes because there's, there's, there's a dialogue here. Esther is a little scared for her life. Rightfully so, because she knows that what she's doing carries the death penalty. Mm -hmm. You have to understand, this is the ultimate Messerius Nefesh on every level. She knows that she's walking into a situation where she is going to incur the death penalty. So what is Mardachai's clinching argument? Why should she do it? What does he say? After he says, Hashem will take care of his business anyway. Then he says, "Um, Umiyodea im la'es kazos higat lemalchus. Who knows if this isn't the reason why you became queen. That's his clinching argument. What is he telling her? He's not saying you have to do it because all your is in danger. You have to do it because it's such a big mitzvah. You have to do it because that's what the Rav Paskind. What did he say? He says, think of where you're at. Let's think, why are you here? And this is such a powerful message. Hashem puts us into situations. And, you know, we talked about it last week or two weeks ago, or both, that, you know, how do I know what I'm supposed to do? And how do I know what my calling is? And how do I know what my job is? And how do I know? Right? How do I know? Well, don't know. Everyone's asking, right? And what's the answer that we were learning in Hevesel He says, Hashem gives each and every one of us certain sets of talents, certain passions, certain circumstances, certain surroundings, and we're meant to listen to life's messages. Hashem put me in that place. And Hashem connected me with that person. That's Hashem's way of saying, go do it. Right? He gave me this upbringing, this background, these talents, these friends. I'm living in that home. That's my neighbor. We have to think. We have to see that. And we have to understand that we're Schluchen. Of Hashem. And he gives each and every one of us exactly what we need and puts us exactly in the right place to accomplish what he needs us to accomplish. And that's why he made us different. Because we don't all have the same mission. If we'd all have the same mission, he would have all made made us clones one from another. He doesn't. No two people have the same circumstances, same background, same friends, same personality, same wisdom, same understanding, same emotions, because everyone has their missions. And what Mordecai is telling Esther, he says, guess what? You know why you have to do this? Because you're the queen. Because you're in the palace. Why do you think you're in the palace? So, and that was the clinching argument more than anything else. He didn't say you have to because I said so. You have to because A, B, C. The clinching argument was you're a queen. You're in the right place. Don't you realize that this is why you're here? This is why the story happened. Because you have the koach and you have this schust to be the one to carry out this special mission. And when Esther heard that, she went. And that's the, the message for all of us also, that we don't have to be a king or a queen. But we each have our own little place in the world where we're the queen or the king, where we're called on. Because we happen to be there and happen to have the right words and the right place and were the right, you know, a lot of things. I happen to be in the right place at the right moment. You didn't happen to be in the right place at the moment. You were put in the right place in the right moment, Mm -hmm. right? People say, oh wow, such a small world. Uh It's not a small world. It's a big world. It's just very well managed. (laughs) And you're you're put in the right place to do what you have to do and what only you can do. And that's what Mordechai told Esther. Number seven. Is that what we're holding? Uh Yeah. Okay. One of the fascinating stories of the Megillah, which doesn't say in the Megillah, it says in the Medrash. And that is that when Mordechai hears of the decree and Mordechai is walking in the streets and he's a little bit um, sad or upset or nervous or whatever it is, says the matter so Mardechai meets some children coming home from Cheder. And he stops three little boys in the street and he stops the first one and says, Yingala, I don't know if he said it in Yiddish, but he says, what did you learn today in Cheder? And the boy says, a Pesach from Mishle. I'm pretty sure it's Mishle. And we say it at the very end of Davening after Aleinu. Altira mi umishoyas rishoyim don't be afraid of fears that come suddenly and from the, from the wicked and their... Don't be afraid of them. Pusuk of Mishle. Okay? Turns to the second boy, and what did you learn today? He says, a Pesach from Yeshaya. Um... Utsu eatsa vesufar, they'll have plots, devise plots, and they'll be destroyed. Dabru, Dabra, they'll say, Where's Velo They won't stand. Hashem is with us. Turns to the third child, What did you learn? And he said, The third Pasik, again, we say them all together after eleno The third boy says, Also, Nishayo, um, how does it go? One gets old, Hashem says, I'm with him, he gets even older, I will sustain him. I've made a person, I will carry him. I will watch over the person as in his old age as well. Three psukim, all about bitachon and Hashem. And the mediter says, when Mordechai heard these three children, Samach, Simcha, Gedola, Mordechai's whole demeanor changed. He was happy with a tremendous Simcha. And who's watching for the background? Haman. And Haman comes and sees Mordechai with this huge smile and says, what are you so happy about? He says, because this is what the three children just told me. Three psukim of Bitachim, of faith. And it says that Haman got so angry. He says, when I'm going to be successful, I'm going to take care of the Jewish children first, said Haman. But this was the turning point for Mordechai When Mordechai is inspired to bitachon from the children, mm-hmm. from the cheder children. And what do they tell him? If you think about it, and I think we once had a, a talk about this, because th- these three psukim are really three levels in bitachon. in very, very short. The first one just says, don't be afraid. A yid is not afraid. Why is a yid not afraid? Because I'm in Hashem's hands. I'm good. I'm not in Haman's hands. I'm in Hashem's hands. So the first pasuk said, "Don't be afraid of them." The second goes further and says, "Not just not afraid. I know with, with perfect um, security that all of their bad um, plots will be destroyed." Right? Utsu They'll have They'll have advice. They'll devise plots. It will be destroyed. Hashem is with us. He's going to destroy their plots. And the third Pasik says even natural things like getting older and old age and with the things that come along with it, I'm in Hashem's hand. Hashem says, I made you and I'll carry you. So these are the three psukim that were told exactly, again, at the right moment, at the right time to Mordechai, a nevuah, a small nevuah from Hashem, strengthen your bitachon, strengthen your hope, don't be afraid of Ahaman, don't be afraid of Nachashverosh. Hashem made us, Hashem carries us, He'll carry us through our lives. We have nothing to be afraid of anyone else in the world. And when Marduchai turned that, heard that, Samach Simcha Gedola, he recognized he was sameach, he was happy with the with the with the message that he had just received from Hashem to strengthen his bitaq. Number eight. Okay, number eight is a is a great one and a famous one. So Morchai hears the plot. What does he do? What does the Megillah say he does? puts a sackcloth and ashes, going walking up and down the streets and crying and, sc- and crying and crying to the Jewish people, did the tshuvah and so on and so forth. Is Mordechai allowed to go into the king's palace now? No, because he's wearing sackcloth and ashes. Now, obvious question. Mordechai is a minister of the king. The Megillah says he's a minister of the king. When a minister of the king hears that there's a new rule out against the Jewish people, what should he do? Go to the king. Go to the king, get an audience. Lobby, the, uh, get the uh, lobby, what's the, what's the lobby called in uh, Washington? Uh, Lobbyists. What? Yeah, what's the, the, what's the Israeli uh, lobby, I forgot what it's called. Uh, uh, J, yes. J something, APAC APAC, oh. whatever. <laughs> you know, get your, get your friends, the people who you get the political favors, you know, get busy. What, he put on a sackcloth and ashes? Started fasting, started gathering Jewish people, dominant, crying, what's going on? He took, he went, he took the wrong, the wrong approach. Yeah, what do I need a minister from the king to put on sackcloth and ashes? He should have hired someone to wear the sackcloth and ashes. Did he should go to the king. No, that's Mordechai. What does Esther do? Mordechai tells Esther, "Go to the king, plead for the Jewish people." I says, "But I'm going to die. Do it anyway." Okay, I'm doing it. Now, so what does she do? What does Megillah says she did? She fasted. she fasted. for three days. Now, Achashverosh is not a tzaddik. Achashverosh liked Esther for physical reasons. What does she have to do? If she's going to go to the king. Just to make herself beautiful, beautify herself, go to the king and try to talk, you know, sweet talk him into this. Mm-hmm. What does she do fast for three days? What do you look like after you fast for three days? So <laughs> <feel myself. laughs> what do you look like after you fast for one day? Right? On <laughs> so 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 both Mordecai and Esther mm-hmm. took a very, very odd course of action. Mm-hmm. The opposite of what we would have expected them to do. Both of them. Mordechai is the minister, go gather your, all your political friends, go to, you know, make a meeting, try this, try that. No, he's davening, sackcloth and ashes. Esther should be beautifying herself to prepare herself to talk to the king in a way that will be most moving to him. No, she's fasting for three days. Why? Because Mordechai and Esther both recognized that what's really going if, the, if there's a threat of annihilation for the Jewish people, what's really going on? Because Ahasuerus is in a bad mood, because Haman is a bad guy? It's because we've sinned. It's because we've, we've, we've distanced ourselves, we've disconnected, disengaged from Hashem, because we went to the meal of Ahasuerus, and because we, we put our trust in him, and because we, we, we lost our faith in the geula. Well, And they recognized that the source of our problems are never Ahasuerus and Haman. Ahasuerus and Haman are vehicles They're carrying out something that's being carried out because of something much deeper. There's a divine issue here. And therefore, our first and most important efforts have to be to correct the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is that Kalal Yisrael has to do tshuva. The root of the problem is we have to change our attitude. By going to the the Feast of Ahasuerus, we've disengaged We've put our betachan in the wrong places. So Marduchay and Esther, their first, their first uh, course of action is, we got to fix the issue. Now once you fix the issue, yeah, we'll go to we'll take care of him. We'll take care of Muhammad. Once you take care of the, of the root of the problem, then the, the other details, are a small business. However, I look, uh, it's not about Achashverush and his decisions anyway. It's not about Muhammad and his decisions anyway. We have to correct the problem so that really uh, uh, Marduchay and Esther In their course of action, we're expressing the essence of what Bitochon is. The essence of Bitochon is that I recognize that whatever happens and the the whole, the vehicles of how it happens are merely vehicles. It's all about the bracha from Hashem. And if that's not working, nothing else is going to work. And that's where they immediately, both of them, put their focus and put their emphasis and efforts. Once that was taken care of, once Mordechai gets the Jewish people to do tshuva, once Esther fasts herself for three days and she fasts together with Klal Yisrael. She said everyone should fast for three days. Now it's a Klal Yisrael that has done shuva, It's a Klal Yisrael that's re-engaged, reconnected to Hashem. So now, of course, we'll go to Ahasuerus and we'll take care of business. The vehicle will do its job as well as long as the root of the problem has been corrected. And that's what Mordechai and Asa did to perfection, which led to the tremendous nace of the story of Purim. Number nine. So what has to be one of the oddest forms of celebration in Purim is the mitzvah, that a person should drink a lot of wine on Purim. Just how much should one drink? So it says, very simple. Adelo Yada, till a person doesn't know the difference between Baruch Mardachai and Arur Hama. Doesn't know the difference between blessed be Mardachai and cursed be Hama. Which is a lot of wine for for most people, hopefully. Mm -hmm. And what does that even mean? And does the Torah want us not to know the difference between good and bad? And there's so many explanations given to this statement. I'll mention one. And that is that there is a concept called Gematria. Gematria means the numerical value of letters. And here comes something that you may or may not know. Baruch Mordechai, blessed be Mordechai, is exactly the same gematria as Arur Haman, cursed Haman. So that according to this approach written in Sfarim, authoritative Sfarim, it says a person should drink enough wine that they can't make the numerical herzbo. They can't figure this out in their head how Baruch Mordechai and Arur Haman are the same gematria. Now, many people don't need anyone for that at all. Right. But but for someone who is good mathematically, maybe that's like, it takes a couple of Mm l'chaims. And you can't figure, I can't figure, I don't know, Baruch, Mordechai, 200, 400, whatever it is. Right? So that's, it's, again, it's written in, in some spharnam, some farsham, that that's really what it means. It obviously doesn't mean the person's supposed to be so dead drunk he doesn't know anything good or bad. But it means to come to a point where, where figuring out the, the numerical values is, is difficult. Okay. Some people pass in with this way, some don't. Whatever. But the question is, what's the deeper meaning behind this? Why are they the same gematria? <laughs> Think about it. I mean, gematria is not just a, t- it's not a game. The fact that things have the same numerical value is because there's a deeper relationship between them. Otherwise, they wouldn't have the same numerical value, you know, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet are very precise and very exact, and especially according to Kabbalah and Hasidus, the letters of the alphabet are the divine energies of the things that they sustain. So why is it that the gematria for blessed Mordechai and cursed Hammon is the same? And the answer is, that's what Purim is all about. Recognizing that everything is directly from Hashem, just like Mordechai is clearly and obviously the tzaddik, the vehicle of Hashem, Haman, the wicked, is also a vehicle of Hashem. Now, Haman might not recognize that he's a vehicle from Hashem. He might not feel that he's doing a shlichus from Hashem. In fact, Haman, on a, on his own level, might be very wicked. But ultimately, if it's happening in Hashem's world, it's a vehicle. Just like, the, I'm sorry. Just like the tzaddik is the vehicle for Hashem to teach us, the Russia is the vehicle for Hashem to inspire us as well. Because Haman inspired the Jewish people to a level of tshuva more than Mordechai did, right? It was Haman's decree that brought the people through Mordechai's help to a state of tshuva, and they're both vehicles. And ultimately, bitachon means that everything in this world is a vehicle of Hashem. Whether it's something that's clearly and obviously good and holy and selfless and, and, and something that's nullified to Hashem's will or something that seems to be antithetical to that and the opposite, Hamon Russia himself is also merely playing his part to give us the yomtiv of Purim and give us La Yehudim HaYi and give us the happiest yomtiv of all, of all time. And that's why the gematriyas are the same because if you look deeper, they're both coming from the same place and they're both bringing us to the same place. And on Purim, we, we come to a place where we become confused, meaning we don't see anymore. We just know it's all Hashem. Everything's from Hashem. The Hamans of the world, the Mardukhais of the world, the good days, the bad days, the setbacks and the challenges and the successes. It's all from Hashem to me. And if it's all from Hashem, ultimately it's all for the good. Sometimes I see it more clearly and more quickly. But on Purim, we pick ourselves up to a point where we recognize how everything is merely a vehicle from Hashem. Number 10. Purim. What other Yom Tiv has a very similar name? Yom Kippur. yom Kippur. Says the Tikkuni Zohar, part of the Zohar, that Yom Kippur is really Yom Kipurim. What does that mean? That Yom Kippur is like Purim which would seem, which one is even higher? Purim. If Yom Kippur is called Yom Kippurim, so that means that Purim is even higher. Purim is like the highest thing in Yom Kippur, which we know is the holiest day of the year, is only like Purim. Which means, in a very interesting and odd way, Purim has a certain level of holiness that even Yom Kippur doesn't have. Why? What is it that Purim has that Yom Kippur doesn't? The answer is, both Yom Kippur and Purim are about recognizing Hashem and everything. Are recognizing, what do we say at the last words of Yom Kippur? Hashem, hu-alokim, Hashem, hu-alokim, Hashem. That everything is Hashem. And on Purim, it's also about recognizing that it's all from Hashem. That the whole story, Achashreir is Hashem and Hamul Hashem and, and it's all vehicles of Hashem. That's what Purim is. But in a way, Purim is higher than Yom Kippur. Because Yom Kippur, we're recognizing that everything is Hashem, but where are we on Yom Kippur? In shul. Mm-hmm. and we're davening all day and we're fasting, so in a sense we're sort of picking ourselves up and becoming very spiritual and holy, and we recognize Hashem in everything, which is wonderful but what's even greater is when it's Purim and we're not in Shul, and we're sitting around the table, and we're enjoying ourselves, and we're not fasting, we're having a good time and even then we recognize that everything is Hashem, that's an even greater accomplishment and achievement to be totally enthused with godliness when I'm in Yom Kippur on show by the Ilan Davening is wonderful. But to carry that over, that even on Purim in the middle of celebrating and reveling and being happy and merrymaking and still to recognize that there's no difference, it's all the same and everything in this world is a vehicle from Hashem that's the ultimate madriga, the ultimate level that wherever we are and whatever we're doing and not only in Shul and not only in Yom Kippur but at every point in life to be able to recognize Megillas Esther, to reveal within the hiddenness to find the revelation of Hashem in everything hidden in this world and recognize how everything is only from Him and he's the only one that is the source of all the bracha we receive and everything that we receive. And because everything is from him, it is all bracha, that's the special nature of this amazing Yom Tev of Purim. Wow. Wow. And this is, a, this is also the whole Purim is all that recognition, how it's all Hashem at every point and every step of the way. I want to finish something we say before every year before Purim. On Purim, there's a special mitzvah, which is, Kala yad nos nimlo, that when someone asks you for tzedakah, on Purim, you give. Other times so when I ask questions on Purim, there's a special mitzvah. So it says written in forum that Hashem listens to his mitzvahs that he tells us he does also. So just like Hashem tells us on this yomtiv that when we, anyone who stretches out your hand, you give them. On this yomtiv, when we stretch out our hands to Hashem as well for all the brachas that we need, for everyone personally and for Klal Yisrael collectively, it's a special time for Hashem's bracha for each and every one of us. And we should all see that mm-hmm. for ourselves, for our family, for Klal Yisrael. And it should be Purim, Mashiach Sidken. Amen. 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 Thank you. You have a good